I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This DevOps Lunch and Learn is about infrastructure pipelines at the tooling level. So really looking at what type of orchestration systems we use uh, or the industry uses for infrastructure automation and controlling day two operations. And specifically, I was exploring the use of Jenkins and other CI pipelining tools, but for ops orchestration. And we really dug into, uh, is this a thing? Why it is a thing? How it's used? What pieces are missing from the system? Uh, and ultimately got into sort of larger day two challenges. So if you were doing infrastructure ops and DevOps automation, you will really get a lot out of this session because this part of the conversation is so rarely covered. No, you will enjoy it. You're going to see NFT expand to not just be one-dimensional JPEGs or two-dimensional JPEGs. They're going to be 3D renderings that are going to have even more value. And I can see going from the 3D rendering in the backplane and all of the issues that are around that because they're bloody hard to do. I mean, I've been doing this for years, but it's bloody hard to do, especially the learning curve on it. Those will become the next iteration of NFT is my prediction. And they will have more value than the current ones. Is that going to drive crypto because i you know it seems to me like the crypto piece like we one of the things that drove up the bubble that we saw for nfts was the fact that people had ethereum to burn um right i i mean so part of my my uh thinking on it is like i have ethereum it's going up like crazy i can buy things with it i'm going to buy virtual goods because it's hard to convert to cash or i have to recognize a, a game when i convert it to cash um what you're just describing. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that it's necessarily going to drive up the level one blockchains, the cryptos themselves. I think it's going to drive up the applications that will take care of that transfer. Because if you look at what um, BSV is doing now, they're actually bringing the payment piece into um, uh, IP version six. Oh, wait, Our wait, friend uh, Dr. Wright is is doing it now. Yeah. Wait. So, I, you you just connected pay, uh, payments and IPv6. Yeah. Greg Wright is working on it, especially oh. now that he won the court case, saying that he is actually Satoshi. Um, you can believe that or oh, not. That's that. That's that link that you posted. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow, that I completely, all right. It came out of left field. IEEE is considering it. And that's going to definitely have an impact on the crypto markets, as well as the PCI version four. Does that unlock all the missing Bitcoin? Like isn't Satoshi's disappearance, like they're an assumption of a significant amount of un... Um, you know, un, unowned or unaccounted for Bitcoin in the in the blocks as part of that? Um, I, I honestly I can't answer because I okay. think that there there's still a debate about whether that's two separate things or not. Okay. 
that makes sense. But I, how does IPv6 become part of payments? Just using transactions, IPv6 is part of a transaction history or as part of an identity piece? Um, part of the uh, both actually, okay. and it's more it's more take the payment piece and add it to IPv6 than okay. IPv6 into the payment processing. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, because it's protocol, right? So, if you can run um, a payment protocol in IPv6 in the same way as you would run a crypto transaction. It's all at the protocol level, so why not? Would that eliminate the need for a smart contract in a in a no. uh, DLT? Okay. No. Because it's just transport. As well as security and other things. Yes, I know. I've I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around okay. it too, Rob. Don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> I mean, I because the, the V6 protocol has a lot of room in it for doing other things in that protocol or adding additional components into the protocol. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, you, you check okay. out his blog of late. Okay. And, and I was very surprised um, because there was an interview... Actually, there was a link on Twitter about it yesterday. Then I went and I listened to the BSV guy talk about it. And I thought, eh, this doesn't sound like him. Then I went to check his blog and there it is. You, does this, I mean, the original topic for today was PCV, P, PCIv4. Does this impact the PCIv4 migration? I think so. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that it could impact, not the least of which is why do you still need it? <laughs> okay. Which is also why do you still need Swift? How would you? I, I mean, uh, this is this is it would be years in the in the transactions. I do think. Oh, boy. It's hard it's hard to, for me to imagine not having Swift as a as an underlying like the banks have to be able to exchange funds in a secure way. Yeah, and they've been using a lot of them have been using Ripple for the last 10 years. I'm not familiar enough with Ripple. Well, Ripple was originally, you know, not created as a um, for its token value of XRP, but rather as a means to create a way for banks to transact in between their own network as a, as a competitor to SWIFT, because SWIFT is slow, very expensive to run, blah, 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 right? So Ripple came out with the notion that you could do this in a far better way. And my involvement with them was I had the first um, market maker contract in this country because I had negotiated a deal with them on behalf of TD. And TD really wanted to get in early in the game as a differentiator. But there's 120 banks that currently use the Ripple protocols. Hmm. I guess and as long XRP as they agree starting- they're, they're exchanging, then it doesn't matter particularly what protocol they use. No, it doesn't. But that's part of the reason that 
XRP as a, a crypto, if you want to call it that, um, has always been very low value because it's only it's only been the transactions between the banks. Now that it's proved itself to be very effective, um, you're starting to see it rise as a currency and compete with the other cryptocurrencies, whether it's Ethereum or, or BTC. And the same holds true of the newer protocols, wow. the newer cryptos. I mean, what, what you're describing to me sounds almost as if, go, go ahead, Rich. Go ahead, Rich. Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, who, uh, who are the primary exchanges that um, recognize XRP and use it as a... Um, as a means of settlement or, or transfer? Um, there's a, I can, I can send you a list. It's a long list, but I can send you a list. Well, I, I can look it up. I was just asking more to, I guess the, the following, the follow-up question was, um, how is, the tra the transformation the the exchange between many of the of today's very volatile uh, cryptocurrencies and XRP how is that how is that manifested who who takes that on and and what is its impact on the exchanges Okay, so for example, CIBC, which is a big Canadian bank, and National right. Bank of Australia, and all of the the you know major banking community has taken it on to do cross border payment. So the right. exchanges and the settlement process. It, I'm not sure I understand the question specifically. Well, the, I is guess the, the question is if or? they're if they are they're using the protocol for ex for exchange for cross-border payment. That means yep. payment in, in on either side in some sort of fiat currency. Right, yeah. and they're using the blockchain to do that transaction in seconds as opposed to days. Right, and do they, do they use, or is anybody actually using XRP as the, as the currency, as a as the the common mm -hmm. currency for that purpose, or is it a simply the use of the protocols so that uh, if I do settlement from um, CIBC and Bank of Australia, they agree as part of the uh, interaction that it's right. a transaction done in Canadian dollars or it's done in Australian dollars. Right. Well, no. Okay, the question so is, the are they actually using XRP as a medium of exchange or simply using the protocols and then kind of referencing some sort of Forex if, in fact, they need to change the currency, the fiat? Okay, so the answer to that question is both. It depends on the bank and the country and the way in which the, the uh, clearinghouses 
right. are run by right. each nation. Exactly. So it is a national. It, there is a a national jurisdiction yeah. that has to be dealt with because otherwise the banks using uh, XRP as the medium of exchange as kind of a <clears throat> canonical form of currency would right. just would would have thrown <laughs> a lot of people a curve a long time ago if that were the case if they were using it that's true sure. but it, but I completely agree with you right. I think it's an either or situation and huh. At least with CIBC and, and uh, National Bank of Australia and the hundreds of others that are involved in this. But think back a few years ago, IBM came out with a big contract that they got for the U.S. federal government to do the decentralized clearinghouse right. on blockchain using right. uh, either Hyperledger or the IBM branded blockchain. Yeah, yeah, it was Hyperledger, and it was a, it was, I mean. It was pretty clear from the outset that they would never be able to pull that one off. But well, irrespective of success or failure, all of these developments have been going on for more than ten years. So, right. Um, I guess my point, the point of my question was whether, in fact, they are using a <clears throat> a canonical form of currency. And then relating that to, you know, at a time of conversion to some uh, foreign exchange, some forex mechanism. And as you pointed out, it depends on where the actual transaction or the conversion go is going to take place. Right. Using the, I, I want to. I guess I want to draw the distinction between using Ripple and the protocols for the settlement from actually uh, converting to a canonical currency and you and then moving things across. Yeah, and and again, uh, pardon my ignorance, I would have to go and look at every set of banks that are relating to each other and what they're using. But mm -hmm. I'm sure Ripple can make it available. It's probably on the website somewhere. Yeah, I'm just gonna go there and, and see where, see how that's working. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, the reason... Go, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. The, re the reason that I brought this up to PCI version 4 is if you look at PCI and trying to set up a PCI uh, capability, which we did for Year Secure, it's a quarter of a million dollars a year just for the audit. It'll cost a million plus to actually get it set up properly and be um, set up in a way that makes sense. So what we ended up doing was creating a workaround to not having to use uh, to create the instance ourselves. At that time, there was a company called Braintree that would do it in mm -hmm. a way that was perfectly legal. They ended up getting acquired, I think, by um, uh, Canberra or something. Yeah. But in, in that event, what it does is it's, it's started to set the stage for why PCI is really not a good thing for companies to have to deal with and why the interchange rates, which are now again in the news, um, are so high and why consumer consumers end up getting the brunt of the cost, right? Because every time you use your credit card, depending on the perks and benefits that go along with it, 
the merchant gets charged a higher fee. The, the more perks you get, the higher the fee they, they have to pay on that transaction. And that ends up getting mm. translated back to the cost of your goods. So it's, you know, so it's going to be interesting to watch. One of the one of the things that occurs to me, though, in this description, especially with, with cryptos and the ease with which you can create a bank, is that if if XRP is a transfer is an accepted transfer currency for banks, what would keep a bank from just saying we are just a crypto trading a crypto exchange? Exactly. It, that, I think it has. Yeah. It, it has to do with the charter um, and the terms and conditions of getting a charter for a bank. Because in the U.S. in particular, there are um, money transfer agent rules, and then there are also bank charter rules. And in some cases, uh, it's easier to just become a transfer service like a Western Union. And by the way, that's the company that's getting killed by all of this. <laughs> right. Yeah, because we're bypassing the the whole whole mechanism. Yeah. Huh. So do you think that XRP becomes a an exchange currency at some point? Is that, is that where you is, is that where you're it, going? No. <laughs> okay. Um, no, there's a big lawsuit uh, that was filed against Ripple, and okay. it's still ongoing with the SEC. And unfortunately, the SEC is the one that's coming off looking like the bad guy. Um, they didn't do anything wrong. Their governance is very strict um, with respect to Ripple, but it's so ingrained for the on-demand liquidity services that it provides, that the banks are not going to back away from it. Whether XRP comes out as um, the latest and greatest crypto, even though it's been around for a long time, that's yet to be seen. I will tell you that it's up like 17, 18% over the last week. That's fascinating. So, I mean, does this ultimately make PCI, I mean, or especially as PCI becomes more complex, it sounded like the V4, PCI V4 was not making anybody particularly happy. Does that then, especially markets down and then um, the opportunity to bypass, does does this create momentum around, um, you know, people not wanting to move into a, a new PCI version? I think if they're smart, they won't. Because huh. it's very complicated. There are plenty of services that can handle it for you. You can pay a monthly fee to have somebody else run your gateway. The question is really around how big of a lobby, politically speaking, the Visa and MasterCards and Discover Cards and credit card companies are. If you look at coupons versus credit mm. cards, the laws are arcane. They vary from state to state. The terms and conditions are insane. Um, huh. yeah. 
it, 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 it's like a specialty unto itself. And then you get to the technology and the burdens that, that are being placed on the banks to keep the legacy systems alive. They're the ones who are pushing back more than anyone else. Oh, that's fascinating. Because I, I, I would have assumed that the banks want the want to keep the barriers and the higher barriers are better for them. But um, yeah, they're, you're right. They're being threatened on the other side. This is fascinating because they're being threatened on the other side by lower friction transactions. And so if we keep adding friction to transactions, the banks are also going to want to move away because they actually, they want high transaction volumes. Be my assumption. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, they do. And, and, you know, like, Part of the reason that our system um, and Interact, which allows us to move money like seamlessly, I mean, it's a whole $1.50 charge to send money to anyone. And depending on what kind of bank account you have, those fees go away as well. So it's frictionless. It happens in seconds. There's no big boomf around it. Uh, You have access to virtually any kind of transaction you would want to make anywhere in the world. And Interact is probably the biggest money exchange in the country versus Visa or MasterCard. Because here, and I don't know if it's the same in the US, there's simply a distribution, banks become a distribution network for the credit card companies. That's it, that's all. This is fascinating because one of the things tying back to an earlier conversation, hey Tyler, earlier conversation about um, virtual spaces, metaverse, that I've always assumed in, in this in is that we're going to end up with a lot more microtransactions in those in those engagements, right? You were talking about exchanging data to enter somebody's virtual space. One of the things, one of the ways to do that is with a microtransaction um, that acknowledges somebody. You know that we're going to end up with. You know, and it could go either way. You enter, you share your data. I'm going to give you a. a microtransaction um, back to you conceivably. Yeah. Uh, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, grant me access by my giving you a piece of data, you're going to have to assign a value to that piece of data that I give you. And you're either going to compensate me for it in a microtransaction or alternatively, you're going to set up some sort of, fiduciary mechanism which puts a value on each piece of that data i'm willing to share but none of the systems even the the blockchains are are well or cryptocurrencies are well suited to lots and lots of microtransactions they get flooded um really easily right the credit card the the pci is you know it's expensive to do small transactions um comparatively and then you know crypto has a you know every transaction has a processing cost even if it's a proof of stake it has you know a significant amount of work every time somebody does a transaction Um, well the way around microtransactions is escrow accounts yeah so you accumulate in an escrow account all of the microtransactions until you hit an upper threshold at which point it then becomes, you know, feasible to have it as an actual transaction. Mm -hmm. It's the same way that coupons work. Mm 
Um, the actual the actual price for um, transactions on many of the the newer chains, uh, Ethereum notwithstanding, um, has actually gone down below, you know, for many of them below two cents, even one cent uh, per transaction, and they can handle volumes of up to fifty thousand transactions a second, which is double what Visa and Mastercard can handle. Okay. So the the trend is in the right direction. In fact, I I mean, if this could be a topic for a future um, uh, meeting, uh, sure, I, I would love to talk about the opportunity associated with microtransactions that has been a promise since the aughts, um, and um, I think uh, blockchain um, in general and smart contracts has the opportunity to really unlock a tremendous amount of new markets for microtransactions, even in just the space that we're all familiar with, uh, which is uh, shared use of available resources in, in data centers all over the world. I'll, I'll add it. Any subtopics to, that you want to include in that? I have it on the 16th. Is that... Sounds good. Okay. Well, I, I think one of the other things that you might want to think about or look at is the exchange of services for non-monetary, meaning fiat or crypto, because that's been around for a long time, but it's coming back. Orange, the telecom and bank that uh, did it in Africa about 10, 11 years ago. Uh, a good friend of mine was the person at, at Orange who was responsible for setting that up. And they did mm. it as a service uh, for cell time. So minutes and fractions oh, right. of minutes. They, had, they have pre, basically pre-bought cards. Those are, those are microtransactions from that perspective. Right. And the microtransactions, but the way they, they worked it was you would you could exchange a service for your spend of minutes. So if you were, let's say, a merchant and you were going to offer shelf space to a brand, then the placement on that shelf was the service you were giving in exchange for the sell minutes that you were buying, which was really interesting. Because I see a very good application of that kind of logic to the metaverse. Oh, yeah. Especially if you're visiting somebody else's space and using time on their server for their... Mm -hmm. Right. You just made me think the public libraries. That's funny. Where, where there's going to be... Where, right, well, there's going to be spaces that, that are publicly financed for people to visit that are non-commercial also. Yeah. In that case. Government services in the metaverse. That's going to be interestingly, yeah, and likely based out of physical library locations. Yeah. My assumption. Well, think about think about lineups at your DMV or our Ministry of Transport, right? Are you going to have 200 avatars lined up waiting to do their thing? No.
actually sounds better and better actually after we talk about it like i started i started like it's going to be you know not not a particular not particularly enthusiastic but i think as we think about how this could be built and owned in a distributed way uh, and then paid for in a distributed way it starts becoming a more and more intriguing concept well i'm sure rich has a lot of thoughts on this because I can think of renewing a driver's license or a license plate, which we no longer have to do, thank God, um, as the penultimate smart contract. All your government. Why do you think of them as the penultimate smart contract? Because why 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 the qualification, Joanne? um, Because it's a form of identity. Exactly. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. I like the way y'all are doing so this. Still, it still requires, you know, there's a there's another factor involved in there. But yes, you're you're absolutely right. And I mean, all of the smart contract work is going to require some sort of well from want of a better word, a registry, or at least a, 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 a source of registry. And that, um, I, I, I keep going back to the, the use of minutes for the sale of service as the thing of value that is either, you know, becomes a, a, a currency or is the is the is what you're selling as opposed to devices, and it's if you recall when we were talking about some weeks ago, or I guess it's now last year, um, the way in which companies have utilized IoT and um, basically selling minutes of flight time on a jet engine, for example, as as the product that's being and the thing of value. And it becomes kind of a a basis on on which you've just gone across currency boundaries, you know, the uh, I, I think we're we're definitely in that in that mix and the smart contracts are going to make an enormous impact once somebody figures out how to actually write smart contract not so much writing them but quality control on them and basically have ways in which these smart contracts are in fact you know provable and uh can be validated because right now it's a it's a complete mess Interesting. Y'all are making me think that these driver's license smart contracts are going to end up being the foundation, just like IDs are today, of a lot of the other contracts and identity. Well, you're going to point to your 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 interaction with the government for a license, and then use that as a foundation for trust. Right? Uh, it will be certainly in in. It's kind of the most reasonable way of getting there in the U.S. 
other countries, you know, have the identity card, basically the same same argument there. But um, that identity card, driver's license, um, the means by which you basically validate yourself to get on an airplane in the U.S. Uh, with smart IDs. Um, absolutely right. You know, that's that is the direction things are going. I, yeah, to me, it's what y'all just described is 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 a very simple entry point, almost an accidental entry point, just like social security numbers became this accidental on ramp for identity for people in the U.S. Exactly. Um, that you know that wasn't the intended use, but it provided what was necessary for you to establish unique you know uniqueness, and then it rolled out from there. Um, the, the the difficulty with the driver's license has been the fact that they are jurisdictional. They, you know, they're issued by uh, state, not yeah. the country. But we're talking about uh, value that's that's easily fungible across, you know, interstate. It is a, a, a you know, when you start using it as a mechanism for interstate commerce, much less international. The jurisdictional issue is going to come into play. And what that ends up creating is, unfortunately, I think a different form of PCI. Um, I don't know. I, I, maybe my experience is different, but like, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I travel, I, I have an international driver's license. And they become the mm. regulatory body mm -hmm. so that wherever I go, I can, you know, it's, it's just my Canadian or my Ontario driver's license is recognized worldwide. And it's as simple as submit a copy, pay a fee, and you get it in the mail or you get it electronically now. Um, I'm not sure that, I guess, I guess that it also comes down to funding in the U.S., doesn't it, Rich? I mean, do states get states collect a fee for a driver's license, yeah, but do they yeah. kick some of that back to the federal government or is it solely theirs? I'm not aware of it. If they do. I actually, I believe it's the opposite. I think that um, the government, federal government is currently subsidizing some of the driver's license bureaus to improve security based on um, some of the identity requirements, like around voting laws and things like that. And, and TSA. Mm-hmm. So I think that, uh, yeah, actually, I'm certain of this money from the TSA went to local governments to improve the authenticity of IDs because they were relied on for tra transit. And so they they subsidized improvements to the ID systems uh, nationally. We have such a weird system. No, such kidding. a weird system. Um, and and now I'm now I'm starting to think that clear is going to become the the broker for all this stuff. And we're going to end up having clear stations all over the place and people will go like confirm that their identity is still matched to whatever their smart contract is. Cause clear collects biometrics, which is stronger identity than the States have on you. And that, that doesn't fill me with particular joy, Rob. 
Very few of our topics fill me with joy, Richard. <laughs> Rich. Yeah. Fear, fear fills me with great joy when 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 I'm going through the San Francisco airport and I can go through with I can go through with a retina scan when there's a there's like a half an hour lineup. Yeah. Fair, yeah. fair enough. All right. Yeah. Hey, hey everybody, I'm about to lose the room that I'm in. So if y'all um all right, everybody. Bye. Have a good, good Thank you. everybody. Talk to you. Great conversation Bye. as always. Bye. Wow, there's times when at Cloud 2030, we dig into topics that other people aren't talking about in ways that really get to the bottom of why we make decisions, why we choose technologies. And this is a really good example of one. I hope you got a lot out of it. Um, I know I did and enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. Uh, if you like these topics and have your own questions, please join us at the 2030.cloud. Uh, you will find our schedule. You can jump in, share your opinions, ask questions, bring knowledge to the Lunch and Learns. That is really what we're here for. Looking forward to talking to you in the next one. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.